gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So I've been kind of dreading doing this solo because, one, it's just been such a crazy, busy time, just physically, but also mentally. There are only so many news stories that, like, get in your head. Um, and the Israel stuff is one of them. And, you know, I know I ramble and occasionally rant, but I don't do like spittle flecked rage. You know, I've, I've cried more times on this podcast than I've screamed at the same time. I'm so full of anger is not even the right word. It's contempt. Um, and contempt is a really dangerous thing for your soul. Um, contempt is like, you know, it's, it's so seductive and, it puts you on a path for forgiving yourself for doing all sorts of things because you believe that the, the objects of your contempt don't deserve um, respect or grace or whatever the right word is. At the same time, contempt is a great muse for a writer. Um, and so you try to harness it without letting it consume you. But the stuff going on is just, its I find it so... I don't like to use the word inexplicably because in some ways my entire job is to not necessarily explain things, um, but to explain my thinking about things. And anyway, the, so the events in Israel, I don't have any family in Israel. I have some friends, you know, not close friends, but, you know, somewhere between friendly acquaintances and friends in Israel. But I have lots of friends with family in Israel and with dear friends in Israel. And so like I'm two stages removed from um, the horrors, maybe three, depending on who you're talking about. I mean, I'm talking to Adam um, from the dispatch a lot. He's Israeli. His wife is Israeli. They've got, you know, serious ties. I did an event with you all live in last night. I don't want to speak for him. It was an off the record thing, but you know, he's got deep family ties. He was born in Israel, lived there till he was like, I think nine. And his mom's side of the family is from one of those communities that was more than, I mean, like the literal meaning of decimate is to kill one out of every 10. And some of those communities were decimated two or three times over. And, um, and of course, John Pedarts is a dear friend and he's got family there and I know I could go on, but that's, I mean, in a weird way, that's, I'm, I'm just, as just to admit my priors, just telling you, you know, my relationship to all this. I've only been to Israel once. I get accused of being like a, it's so funny. I asked ChatGTP a while back to tell me 10 things about Jonah Goldberg and it went on this long it was like five of the things it told me were all about how I'm a Jewy Jew who writes Jewish things and um, I write mostly about Israel and all this stuff. And it's just like, you know, I don't write very much about Israel. I mean, at times like this, I write a lot about Israel stuff, but um, 
I, um, you know, I've only been there once. It was a great experience until I found out that my bro- my brother had what would turn out to be a fatal accident. So I don't have the best associations with, uh, with, with physically being in Israel. Although again, prior to getting that news, it was a great trip. Um, haven't been back. Um, when I went, I used to make all these jokes about how I wanted to go collect my back pay because for 15 years, 20 years, people have been telling me, um, that I'm on the payroll of Mossad or that I pay that, 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 um, I'm a professional propagandist from Israel. And again, don't write about Israel very much. I mean, yeah, when Israel was in the news, I would write about it like it was a newsy event. I've probably written in the last five years, more columns about Ukraine than about Israel. But, you know, part of the problem is, is I have this name, you know, that short of Shlomo Abramowitz is about as Jewy as you can get. And people, um, make a lot of assumptions. I can't tell you how many sincere and decent people I've met over the years who assume I'm an expert on Israel simply because of my name. And it's amazing how, like, um, I used to do, I don't know why they don't invite me back anymore, but I used to do, you know, that call-in show on C-SPAN. You know, I, I don't know how often, every year or two, something like that, maybe more often, maybe less, depending on the era. And it was amazing how many callers would just simply say all these things about me being like in the pay of or um, being I'm, I'm an agent of or I'm an apologist for Israel. Look, I'll confess, I'm pro-Israel. Some of it has to do with my Jewishness. Um, some of it has to do with my very Jewish guilt about my Jewishness. But a lot of it has to do with like standard sort of American foreign policy arguments. Like I am always going to be more in favor of liberal democratic societies than non-liberal democratic societies. That's just like my go-to thing. Um, America is, I shouldn't say is always going to, should always take the side of democratic movements and free peoples and free government, you know, and liberal governments. Um, That doesn't mean we go send boots on the ground to fight for every single one of them in every single circumstance or anything like that, but at least rhetorically, diplomatically, philosophically, we're on, this country is on the side of freedom. We have our heads and our hearts wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice. And so, you know, we were a rat, we were conceived as a profoundly radical nation that put forth something new on this earth. And we have, you know, I, I think leader of the free world can sound like a really trite thing, but it's what we are and what I think we should remain. And when you look at what Israel has tried to do, uh, first of all, to survive, um, but to survive while at the same time upholding liberal democratic values, despite having a really, I mean, I, I want to emphasize this, a profoundly stupid system of government for a democracy. I mean, I've talked about this before, you know, a unicameral parliamentary democracy with a bizarro Supreme Court is just no way to run a modern country. I mean, it's just, they need more checks and balances. You know, I talked about this with Pod. Adam did that great interview with that Israeli journalist about the Supreme Court stuff in Israel. You know, the Israeli government was basically founded as a sort of um, add-on to the Israeli military and independence movement. And 
Um, and the, the checks and balances arguments and all that kind of stuff didn't appeal to people who kind of were of a socialist bent. If I lived in Israel, I would be in favor of a con something akin to a real constitutional convention. I would create two houses of parliament, you know, an upper and a lower chamber. I would give clear and defined powers to the Supreme Court. Necessary. I mean, I don't. I, I would not leave it the way it is. It is a hot mess, and I think that this is one of the things that got lost in a lot of the coverage about the Supreme Court stuff in Israel, the, the judicial reform stuff, is that there were perfectly legitimate arguments about why the judicial that judicial reform was necessary. I just think that the way Bibi Netanyahu went about it was absurd. And that's just a level of nuance you're not allowed to have about Israel. These, you know, this is prior to the Hamas's invasion. Anyway, enough with the level setting. Um, part of the reason why I'm I'm fighting so much anger and contempt is, you know, I spent since Trump came down that stupid escalator in what 2015. I spent an enormous amount of time complaining about right wingers alt-righters, gripers, whatever you want to call these people, playing footsie with anti-Semites on the right. Um, and not just anti-Semites, bigots of all shapes and sizes. Um, I always took very seriously the sort of National Review mandate that, um, you know, responsible conservatives, you know, National Review, it took time for it to get there. Um, but it saw itself as in part as sort of like the Texas Rangers riding the frontier between the swamp lands and civilization. And, um, you know, William F. Buckley, you know, reading out the Birchers, you know, have his troubles with, you know, his, his you know, broadside against Pat Buchanan. One of the things that, you know, National Review took very seriously was um, the poisonousness of anti-Semitism um, on the right. And I think Bill was heroic about that, less than heroic about the race stuff, which we've talked about plenty of times. Um, but NR came around on all that stuff as well. And then in 2015, I know I've talked about this before, start 2015, late 2015, early 2016, thanks in part to like Steve Bannon and a lot of Russian troll farms and a lot of other things, Jewish journalists of the left and the right started getting viciously attacked by the alt-right. And um, this was the era where, you know, they would start putting parentheses around Jewish last names to signal that these were, you know, filthy Jews and all that kind of stuff. And I just was so disheartened and so pissed off at many of my, you know, legitimate friends on the right, you know, both professionally and, and personally, who kind of rolled their eyes at people like me or Jay Nordlinger, um, or anybody else making a big deal about this, saying that this is really bad, that these people should not be part of the conservative coalition. There's some people who need to be outside the tent. Um, and you can have as big a tent as you want, but the idea that somehow it's my hangups, my unreasonableness, that um, I don't want to be in a tent, people who tell me that... Uh, the world would be better off if, you know, if Hitler gassed my, my great-grandparents or send me pictures of me or David French's daughter or whoever in gas chambers and Trump in an SS uniform hitting the gas button. 
Um, I can't tell you how much of that crap I got. I think the ADL listed me as the sixth biggest um, recipient of anti-Semitic attacks on social media. And again, I'm not saying this to be a victim. A lot of it was just, you know, to use a somewhat apt phrase, Sturm und Drang. Um, but I, I kind of, since then, have made it a point to say, like, you can't, that conservatives need to denounce and speak up about the utter garbage on their own side um, as a matter of principle, as a matter of integrity, as a matter of just common decency. And then, so fast forward to this last week, I watch all of these elite institutions, um, particularly college campuses and whatnot, struggle to come up with um, a clear denunciation of a bunch of terrorists who break into people's homes. We don't have to go through the whole litany. It doesn't, I mean, as a matter of symbolism, the beheading babies thing is, is useful in the sense that it is just so beyond the pale, depraved and evil as an image, so disturbing at a visceral level. It really kind of sweeps away almost all equivocation and argument. But you know what? So does setting fire to babies. So does shooting babies. So does shooting, you know, kids in front of their parents and parents in front of their kids. Um, it, you know, the um, we don't know right now how many women were raped, but you can be sure that the women who were taken hostage, you know, I mean, sure, you can surmise, or it would be an edu- it would not be unreasonable to expect that many of them will be raped. Those videos of Hamas guys who were captured were saying the plan was to rape them. Now. Those were released by the IDF, so you want to be super skeptical about that. But, you know, put it this way. I watched, I mentioned this on the Dispatch podcast uh, yesterday before I had to jump off because of this crazy hacking thing. I watched this guy on CNN, this man, originally from Ireland. I'm sure you can find it. Maybe we'll put in the show notes. He was interviewed where his, you could just tell how racked with agony this guy was. His eight-year-old daughter was on a sleepover and that was one of the houses that was broken into. And he thought for several days that she'd been kidnapped by Hamas. And then he finally gets word that no, she'd actually been killed. And he's recounting this and he said, I yelled, yes. And he's saying this through sobs. And his point was, was that the months or years of torture and abuse that he was sure um, his eight-year-old daughter would be put through as a Hamas captive would be worse than a quick, if albeit tragic and and barbaric death. This was not some cold-hearted, weird, you know, Werner Herzog, bleak nihilism that was coming out of this guy. He was so disgusted with a kind of, to be in a kind of world where any father would have that reaction to the news of his eight-year-old, and she was an adorable girl, his eight-year-old daughter's death. I just said, we found Emily. Uh, she's dead. And I went, yes! I went, yes! And smiled. Because that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew. That was the best possibility that I was hoping for. She was either 
dead or in Gaza. And if you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza, that is worse than death. That is worse than death. The way they treat you, they'd have no food, they'd have no water. She'd be in a dark room filled with Christ knows how many people and terrified every minute, hour, day and possible years to come. So death was a blessing, an absolute blessing. You've seen the videos, you know what I'm talking about. These atrocities, some of the atrocities are so bad that the normal atrocities don't seem so bad anymore. But, you know, shooting a bunch of people in the back at a concert, bunch of, by the way, mostly from what I have read and t can tell, hippy-dippy kind of peacenik, uh, pro-two-state solution, conscientious objector type, you know, Israelis were mowed down unless they were taken hostage or raped or something, right? And it's at this moment that hundreds, thousands, you know, I mean, it's hard to tell with different campuses, different protest groups, different fringe groups. Um, but this is the moment where protests, letter writers, signatories of petitions, whatever, the usual suspects who get interviews on cable TV and go on and on and on. This is the moment where they say we need to express our solidarity with the Palestinians. This is the moment where they say they are, their heart aches for the Palestinians. I mean, I can't tell you how many of those kinds of statements from squad types and whoever I've seen where their initial reaction to the wanton premeditated slaughter of civilians, including children, um, is to immediately feel sorry for the plight of the Palestinians. Now, I've written about this twice now, so I can't belabor it anymore. But this inherent disconnect, this, this, this logical nonsense, sorry, words don't come easy, where you have people say, lots and lots of people, that this is resistance, this is decolonization, this is the authentic voice of the Palestinian people. This is what you get when you mistreat a people for so long. Um, they say this when Hamas murders people as to legitimize it and make it the authentic expression of the righteous grievances of an oppressed people. But then the second Israelis respond or retaliate, the same people will say how outrageous or even how genocidal it is to target which Israel's not doing, but to kill innocent bystanders, Palestinian civilians. Which is it? Either Hamas is the authentic and legitimate representation of the popular will of the Palestinian people, and they are doing what the Palestinian people want, or they're not. If I go around saying the average Palestinian is a terrorist and a murderer, which I don't believe. But if I go around saying something like that, I'm accused, uh, I would be accused of fomenting genocidal rhetoric, of bigotry against innocent, you know, Palestinians who just want a normal life. But the defenders of Hamas are the ones who are saying Hamas is simply an extension of the legitimate 
um, and authentic and, and justified views of the Palestinian people. They're the ones who are ascribing collective guilt to the Palestinians when they make those arguments. And it's particularly grotesque to me to make those arguments as a way of defending the wanton slaughter of innocent civilians, including children, um, on the Israeli side. Because if you say that every civilian, every child, that some Hamas goon, some Hamas butcher can get their hands on is a legitimate target for freedom fighters in the resistance, then you are endorsing collective punishment. Then you are endorsing collective guilt. You're the one who says that every Israeli is in effect a terrorist. And you are endorsing the policy of killing Israelis wherever you find them. And I should be clear, not just Israeli, Jews. Right? The head of Hamas, who lives in Qatar, in under lavish circumstances, issued a statement earlier this week that today, Friday, October 13th, should be a day of worldwide resistance against the Jews. And already as of this morning, um, there were uh, at least, I think, three attacks on Jews um, in different parts of the world based on this. You know, this, this call to arms, this call for resistance, whatever. Um, and the guys said, kill Jews where you find them, right? You didn't, these aren't military targets. You know, one guy was stabbed at, outside, outside of the Israeli embassy in Beijing. Um, somebody else was attacked in Paris. These are not, you know, Israelis. These are not Israeli occupiers or IDF forces. These are just Jews. Anyway, the reason I bring this up, because I know you know all this, and I'm sorry, but I just, it's, it, it, it just sits so lightly on the surface of my contempt for so many people. So now you watch these people struggle to condemn this stuff, just to come up with a few clear words that says, you know, murdering babies is bad. Attacks on concert goers or music festival goers, whatever that thing was, it was like a dance festival. That these things are bad. That murdering kids in their homes is bad. Murdering old people, kidnapping Holocaust survivors is bad. Like this is, you pick this moment to rush to the defense of the Palestinians. It tells you an enormous amount about how you see the world. And I want to be really fair to a lot of people who, who have had these knee-jerk, nasty, evil responses. And a lot of them are just evil responses. A lot of these people are just idiots. Like, I think it's a good thing that a bunch of the people who are members of these organizations at Harvard and elsewhere are having to come forward and say, hey, I didn't even see this letter. I don't want any part of this. I think some of them are lying. I think some of them knew about the letter, but they're like, holy crap, this could actually hurt me getting a job if I'm out you know, associated with a statement that just says um, Israel is solely the blame, blame for the violence visited upon, um, you know, Israeli toddlers, that murdering toddlers is justified because of Israel's actions. Um, but some of these people probably aren't lying and they're actually forced to make a choice about what they want to be associated with. And like, I don't, I don't love doxing and all that kind of stuff, but if you're going to come out in favor of murder, but you don't have the balls to actually put your name to it and you're outraged that anyone would actually name you as being associated as part of this group, I just, I can't muster a lot of sympathy, nor can I muster a lot of sympathy for the people who 
are struggling how to come up with the most clever way of offering condemnation without pissing off people who are in favor of murdering Jews. And um, like Gretchen Whitmer, her initial statement, I mean, if it wasn't such a grotesque context, was pretty hilarious. I don't have it in front of me, but it was basically, you know, look, as a political matter, I get it. You know, Michigan has a very large Arab population. Uh, it's a complicated thing. You know, ethnicity and politics is a complicated thing. We can talk about the 1950s because this is something that a lot of people don't really understand about, you know, anti-communism and, um, and all that was the role that basically, you know, various Midwestern ethnics played in a lot of that stuff. So it's complicated. Don't dispute that. But who gives a rat's ass if it's politically complicated? If you have a sizable portion of constituents in your state who are in favor of, of setting babies on fire or murder or setting families on fire, and you have a constituents in your state that is opposed to these things, I have no sympathy for you whatsoever if you think it's necessary to do different splitting and both sidesism. This is not, it's just not a both sides thing. It's not, you can, I don't, I really don't mind criticisms of Israel. Israel's in a terrible place, terrible neighborhood. It's made some choices that I think are more defensible than a lot of Israeli critics do. But we're still hard, we're, we're, we're just basically the least bad option sometimes. I totally agree that, you know, at some point things went on a wrong turn with the treatment of the Palestinians. I think the Palestinians had a lot to do with that, but that's neither here nor there. You know, I don't think you're evil or anti-Semitic if you have criticisms for Israel. I have criticisms for Israel. That's all fine. But whatever your criticisms of Israel are, if they extend to saying, to celebrating or actually making flyers with paragl Hamas paragliders and, you know, with all the sort of viva la resistance or glory to the martyrs or whatever bullshit, if your response to, to, to news that hundreds, now over a thousand civilians were slaughtered in their beds, slaughtered in their homes, um, executed and thrown, you know, basically an equivalent of mass graves. Um, if your response to that is to express profound sympathy for the Palestinians and support for the people who did it, you're the bad guy. This is not complicated. This is just this is just the most friggin' morally obvious thing in the world. And if these were Klansmen attacking black people, anybody who tried to offer context, right, or you have to understand the long history here or any of that kind of crap would be pelted from the public stage, and rightly so. It's just this is not one of these things that is um really open to some sort of clary, clever, nuanced debate. And so anyway, I bring up Whitmer because Whitmer's initial statement was like utterly devoid of proper nouns. It was like, we are, I am aware of the situation and the place with the things that happen to the people and the communities affected. I mean, it was only slightly less parodic than if she said, you know, I am aware of the tensions between the carbon-based life forms um, of a bipedal nature and our sympathies go out for everybody. I mean, it was so bad. And she, of course she had to come out with a new one that was much better and all that kind of stuff. But like, um, this is the left's problem. And look, I want to be clear. It's also a huge problem on the right. 
but they're, you know, I do this both sides of them. I make this point all the time about the asymmetric nature of things. The right has a cancel culture problem. The left has a cancel culture problem. The right has a bigotry problem. The left has a bigotry problem. They're not, they don't manifest themselves in identical ways. And for most of the last seven, eight years, I would tell you that the bigotry problem is much bigger on the right. And in many ways, it still is. But in this moment and in this context, the bigotry problem is overwhelmingly on the left, where all of these elite institutions, particularly these higher ed you know, places leading with Harvard, but also Northwestern and GW, um, they have gotten themselves into a place where they have professors who teach bullshit. Um, where they've bought into this um, anti-colonial theory stuff that really has deep Soviet propaganda, Marxist roots. Um, I'm not saying that all colonies were great or anything like that, or you can't criticize colonization or any of that. There, there were Whiggish historians who could tell you why, you know, there are upsides and downsides to, to colonization. I'm a big defender of the American Revolution, which was an anti-colonial thing, right? I mean, there was, just as a matter of normal historical, you know, uh, uh, discussion. It's perfectly fine to talk about bad things that colonial empires did, right? I've talked about it plenty of times, you know, the Hastings trial that Edmund Burke led and the, 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 the birds of prey problem about how it was, how the empire was twisting the souls of young British men. Totally valid stuff. But this anti-colonial theory stuff um, or decolony, you know, whatever they call it, you know, um, is gone completely off the rails. It's where a lot of this nonsense about, you know, uh, cultural appropriation and all this kind of stuff, and it has run roughshod, it gets rewarded, it gets subsidized in higher education. And when it meets particularly kids, rich kids from, and not just rich kids to be fair, you know, but a lot of Palestinian and Arab and Muslim kids who um, are hardly in need of the kind of permission structure you get from the eggheads who tell them that they're right to hate Jews or to hate Israel, um, uh, but they get it anyway, you get the mess that you're in. There is a constituency now on these campuses that is simply in favor of murdering Jews that cannot bring itself to condemn the premeditated murder of Jews. Um, that's a problem, and it's a problem that those guys made. The same people, right? The, the same people who've been telling us for I don't know how long now, 10 years it's been a thing, since 2012 or so, um, the same people have been telling us that, you know, that, that... Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. 
So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Ver How do I put this? That verbal violence is real violence, are now verbally endorsing actual violence, right? These are the people who say that speech is violence, but violence is speech. And they're endorsing the murder of children. And they think you're a bigot if you have a problem with it. This is a bed that these assholes have made. I'm sorry to curse, but it just, I have such contempt for the world that these people have ushered in. You know, you select for, you know, you've heard my theory before about why so many schools are disproportionately uh, discriminating against qualified Asian kids. And part of my theory is, is that a lot of these Asian kids are first generation, uh, are either immigrants or first generation Americans. They come from extremely bourgeois and I mean bourgeois in the good way, right? Not in the, oh, look how terrible the bougie people are way. They come from hardworking, middle-class, striving families who think you send your kid to college to get a good job. And these kids don't necessarily speak the, the argot, the lingua franca of social justice. And the schools reject them out of hand, disproportionately reject them. These schools are looking for young social justice warriors. They think it is a benefit on your application. They think it makes you a better person. The more fluently you speak this nonsense, the more sophisticated you seem to these people because the administrators speak it too. It is their language. It is like what Yiddish was for textile traders in mid-19th mid century Poland. This social justice nonsense is the language of these um, new class bureaucrats. And they're looking for kids that are like them. It's like when George Costanza was trying to find some kid to get a scholarship for the 
thing he set up after his wife died from licking envelopes. And he loved the little chubby kid who got C's in school um, and liked lying and told him he wanted, he always wanted to be an architect. He's like, ah, this is a kid like me, right? These people in these universities, they've been selecting for these kinds of kids. They got these kinds of kids. And now they're living with the consequences of these kinds of kids. And they feel the need to equivocate about murder. And to hell with them. Let the, I like, again, I've got the scars to prove it about how much, you know, how much I had to respond to people saying, you know, do you defend what these people on your side are saying? I would say, no, I don't, you know? And so when I watch these people sweat and want to be let off the hook for the part of their coalition, which I do think, and I'll get to this in a second, is only a fringe part of their coalition, but it's an important fringe, right? It's in, the, it's in communities and institutions at a very high level. I find I have zero sympathy for these people who are saying, this is, how, you know, there's this, this idiot woman who was the head of the NYU Student Bar Association who issued this statement forthrightly defending Hamas um, and it's, you know, resistance against colonial oppression and, and was completely and wholly untroubled by any of the images or allegations of anything. She was just 100% all in pro Hamas and a law firm rescinded their job offer for her. I, you would need an electron microscope to find a violin small enough for me to play, to have any sympathy for this woman. I don't, if, 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 you want to claim that this is some sort of violation of free speech principles or free speech, you know, values. Okay. I don't think it is. Um, but fine. That's a, that's fine by me. This is not some horrible, evil blacklist. This is like a law firm saying, Hey, you know what? Maybe it's not a great idea for customer relations, for client acquisition, for, office collegiality to give a job who gleefully celebrated the murder of Jews before even the bodies were buried. And it does not bother me in the slight, again, doxing is a little problematic kind of thing, but meh. Like, again, if you were, there's not a single person who's getting their panties in a knot about this stuff who would have any problem with it being a life a career-destroying decision to be to try and start a KKK chapter on a college campus. And yes, I think the comparison is perfectly fine. Yeah, there are differences between the KKK and 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 various Hamas supporters. There's less of a difference today between KKK and actual Hamas. In fact, Hamas is worse than today's Klan because you know the Klan is full of bad people. I think I don't need to dilate further on that. But Hamas is just a lot busier murdering people. And I'll tell you, look, I, we employ journalists at the dispatch. We hire young people. If I saw that you were um, a member of a group that signed on to that statement from the 39 social justice Nimrod groups endorsing this and saying that it was solely Israel's fault, I might ask you about it out of curiosity and if you had a great explanation for why you thought 
it was unfair to you or how you've, you know, come to your senses, I, you know, I'd listen and, I'll, and, and maybe, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd be, I, I would like to think I would be open-minded enough to hear you out. But all things being equal, you're not going to get a job working for me, nor are you going to get a job working for me if you work for the frigging clan, you know, or you signed on to a letter from the clan. And like, that's life. You want to have, you want to, you want to get all of the credit for being courageous and speaking truth to power, but pay zero consequences for it. Screw that. If you want to go out on a limb and endorse mass murder, okay, good for you, I guess. Good for you to stick to your, your evil convictions. But then don't whine about being held to account for taking that position. Anyway, I, I, I know I've rambled. I'll, I'll try to get off of this because there's other things to talk about. I do struggle with one thing, and I might write about this today. I don't know. There have always been really fringy, evil, Stalinist groups in the United States, just as there has always been really evil, crazy, fringe, racist right-wing groups. Always have been, right? In the 1980s, like growing up in New York City, you would occasionally see really weird flyers from some of these crazy Stalinist groups. In the 90s, what was it? International Answer, which was a pro-North Korea thing. They took on this, I guess it was in the early 2000s. They took on this, this patina of being legitimate because mainstream liberals were against like the Iraq war or when they became against the Iraq war, you know, and so these groups would have big peace and justice rallies that would attract, you know, lot more normal mainstream lefties and, and liberals, and it made them seem like a bigger thing than they are. But most of those people weren't endorsing, you know, Jucho or whatever they call it in North Korea. And they weren't Stalinists and they weren't, you know, for the liquidation of the Kulaks or anything like that. But these groups have always sort of been out there as sort of like starter dough for larger movements. But for the most part, the mainstream media ignored them, you know, and I think they pay too much attention to the crazy right-wing ones and not enough attention to the crazy left-wing ones as a matter of balance. But for the most part, like, you weren't getting past gatekeepers to be treated seriously. You were starved of the oxygen of attention. And I think that one of the things that has happened in the modern era with social media and the internet is that you don't need those gatekeepers anymore. Right? You don't need... Um, uh, to get past the editors at National Review or Meet the Press or, or the New Republic or any of these kinds of places to get attention because you can just be a YouTube influencer or you can have some viral asinine tweets. And part of the, so part of the problem is, is that it's easier for these people to get attention than it ever was. But also, because they get more attention, they attract more people to their cause. You know, the analogy I've used for years on this, which again is strained, but I think it illustrates it, is that if you were, you know, some sort of vile pedophile 50 years ago, it was kind of hard to, to network with other pedophiles. I gather there were some magazines, maybe you want to go to a NAMBLA meeting, but Lord knows how many undercover cops are sitting in on that, Right hard conversation to strike up with a stranger. Hey, are you into, you know, that kind of thing, you know? Um, uh, I mean, movie airplanes, hilarious, but under normal circumstances, you couldn't really ask a young boy in the company of other people, whether he was really into movies about gladiators. Um, and, uh, but the internet all of a sudden, not only made it possible to meet other people 
like with the same depravity that you have, because you can meet people with the same depravity you have, um, you didn't feel like all that guilty about it anymore. You didn't think it was all that depraved because look, there are a lot of people like me who like this garbage, this evil stuff. And you start seeing yourself as a member of a group. And when you see yourself as a member of a group, you get a lot more confidence, right? You are seeking only the approval of the people in your group. I think something similar happens with stuff like the, the, the alt-right neo-Nazi garbage and also with the pro-Hamas stuff. You add in the fact that these college administrators, administrators have done all of this evil, um, not evil, a lot of it's just stupid, selection um, of both faculty and students that are inclined towards these points of view. And that's even more legitimizing and credentializing. And so I, what I'm struggling with is trying to figure out like, yeah, so there was that horrible rally in Times Square where everyone was cheering the murder of Jews and you had one of the guys there holding up a swastika on their phone and the leader of the thing was from this idiotic, you know, fringe Stalinist Green Party splinter group or whatever who was just laughing about how awesome it was that all of these hipster Israelis were murdered at that festival. Those people have existed in prior times. This is not really the evidence that some people are taking it as of the society of societal collapse today. But because those kinds of people have always been have always been around. The difference is is that they're getting attention now. And that breeds more attention. And particularly in a time where everybody wants to say, this is who the other team is, this is a huge problem for the left. It's a huge problem for Democrats. And I think it is part of the thinking. I think Biden's being sincere in his statement about statements about Israel have been um, great. And I have no criticism of them. I'm not sure he has the follow through and I'm not sure that they can be completely reconciled with his actual policies about everything from Afghanistan to Iran. But on the four corner, within the four corners of the page, his statements about Israel have been great. And so have been the denunciations from a lot of Democrats. But a lot of these Democrats, I think, recognize the problems they face going down the road if they're not on record denouncing this stuff. And again, I'm not saying it's not sincere for a lot of them. Um, I think it's sincere for most of them. The Democratic Party, the left, has a big problem with a lot of people who have spent years coming up with these ornate theories of why it's okay to support medieval friggin' barbarians who revel in slaughtering Jews. I could indulge, I could take the nesty plunge backwards into a giant lake of my contempt for these people in terms of the irreconcilability of their other views about social relations, right? I mean, these are the people who want to purge the language of, of patriarchy in any way and who tell you that you are an eliminationist genocidal bigot if you've got any sorts of problem with any sexual minority of any kind. But they're perfectly willing to celebrate to the hilt groups like Hamas who are not exactly feminist allies, who are not exactly rainbow flag people. And they do it because they're caught, they're ensorcelled by this, these ridiculous theories that they've worked up. And this sort of gets to my larger point, which I've been talking about a bit now, and I know we still haven't played the Yasha Monk episode that I was, I was referencing last week. But, you know, my longstanding thing about 
how I have increasing contempt for things that are called new ideas because most of them aren't new. Again, like, come up with the most novel theories you want about why it's, it's okay to murder babies. I'm still going to say that's bad. It's not like, wait, 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 but you haven't heard my other argument. And I, was like, I don't need to hear your other argument. I don't, this is not a question. This is, I've talked for years about this. People constantly email me about it every time I do, about how I want some moral dogma to be just some questions to be settled and that don't need to be debated anymore. You know, this is an argument I've had with, with Charlie Cook for decades now, um, or years now, um, where... I don't want to do I don't see any good that comes from debating about whether or not the Holocaust happened. I don't see any good that comes from debating whether or not slavery was good or bad, right? Some moral questions are just closed for a decent society. Slavery's bad. And you can come up with whatever clever arguments you want. Um, they can be as novel as all get out. If you're arguing for murdering babies, if you're arguing for enslaving people, I'm just going to say, I'm sorry. I, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what your reasons are. It doesn't matter what context you're bringing up. That's just not something we do in this society. That is not something we endorse in this society. And so you can... You might as well just come up with the old reasons for killing Jews because they have as a much persuasive power to me as any of your new reason for ki killing Jews. And I just want to be clear. I have the same view about killing Arabs. Don't kill, don't, don't kill any innocent people on purpose for no other end than to glory in the bloodshed and to send some sort of message to people. Right? I mean, war is ugly business and Israel is going to do some ugly things because it needs to for its own security. But, you know, any Jews who are talking about or Israelis are talking about ethnic cleansing and wiping out Palestinians or talking about them being cockroaches, they should cut it out. I think they do it a lot less than people like you know, leaders of Hamas. I mean, leaders of Hamas, it's in their official statements, that language. And yet. I can't tell you how many people are freaked out and enraged by offhand comments by random Israelis on the news who are you know, like still grieving the dead and say, see, this proves the Israelis are genocidal. And meanwhile, like the official freaking charter of Hamas endorses genocide. There are speeches, there are videos of speeches of Hamas leaders, Hezbollah leaders, right? ISIS leaders go down a long list talking about the need to wipe out all Jews everywhere, to clean out Israel from the river to the Mediterranean, from the river Jordan to the Mediterranean. People who approvingly cite these passages from the Quran about how, you know, you have to kill the Jews wherever you find them. And, you know, even the trees will tip you off about where the Jews are. These people are saying this stuff, this medieval language about stuff. And these modern social, you know, secular cleansers of the language and of all tradition love it and celebrate it. And they want to claim that they're doing it for very clever post-colonial theory reasons. And I don't give a rat's ass how clever the reasons are. I think the arguments are all dumb because any argument that leads to endorsing murdering Jews because they're Jews is a bad argument. You know, if you're standing over a crib with a machete, I don't need to hear all your reasons about why you want to kill the baby. If I have the ability to stop you, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you. It doesn't matter what his parents did or his grandparents or people with the same name or the same religion did. There's no, there's no justifying it. That's what, that's what liberalism rightly understood 
is means. It's also what a lot of what Christianity is supposed to mean, by my understanding. It's also what a lot of Judaism is supposed to mean. It's at least there are at least some traditions in Islam that Islam is supposed to mean these things. You're not supposed to punish people for the sins of uh, for the sins of other people. And the people who think Israel is doing this against Palestinians, they endorse openly Palestinians doing it against Israelis. So I, just have, I just have contempt for the whole thing. All right, I'm, I, I could go on. Let's do a little punditry. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm gone all next week. I'm going to Europe on Monday. I got a wonderful invitation to go on a trip. Um, my wife and I are going. Dogs and cats will be taken care of. Dog and cat will be taken care of. We've recorded some podcasts. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to do my writing. You know, I'm not going to be on top of the news for the next, you know, week to 10 days, at least not the way I normally would be. So I'll go a little long here to get into some other punditry. <sighs> so I have a piece in the uh, new, the first monthly episode of, of National Review. Um, Ramesh invited me to do it. Ramesh is the editor of the magazine, of the print magazine. Um, he replaced Rich. A while back, Rich is still a poobah of like National Review World, the extended National Review universe. Um, but uh, the magazine is now Ramesh's baby. And um, it looks great. I just got it this morning, so I haven't poured through every article. It's kind of fun. Um, there's a sort of state of conservatism, state of the GOP cover um, and a bunch of different writers writing on it. And I'm listed. Um, one of the things that gives me a kick is I'm listed alongside uh, Jack Butler, um, who has a piece in there on it too. I haven't read it yet, but I, uh, Ramesh originally asked me to do something on constitutional or legal reforms that, um, could improve the state of our politics. And partly because of the conversation I had with Jay Cost on here, I still think there are changes to the constitution that would be probably be valuable but I'm I'm still I'm I'm not a big let's amend the constitution guy. And in part, you know, something that Jay said that really crystallized um my thinking about some of this. I think the way you protect the constitution is actually by writing legislation and just simply rules that insulate and conform to the spirit of the constitution. It is amazing to me how many of the reforms of the last 30, 40 years have um, made things worse to one extent or another. 
Um, doesn't mean they're all poorly intentioned. You've heard me talk about McCain-Feingold. I think McCain-Feingold was a disaster for this country uh, because it it ushered in the era of of. It's not because I hate small donors. Or like I do, as I've talked about many times here, I think small donors are a problem. I think the, but the, the main reason they're a problem is because they are part of this larger dynamic of weak parties. And I'm not going to do my whole, you know, riff, me and Starwalt thing, weak parties create strong partisanship and blah, 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 blah. But that's part of what I wrote about in the article. But, um... You can go down a list. Um, I was talking about this last night on this panel with Yuval and Continetti at AEI. Um, I was against like the, you know, I, I, I was I was in favor of all the sort of reforms, getting rid of earmarks and all that kind of stuff. I got caught up in that, was it Proxmire? I used to have those Golden Fleece Awards, you know, about the most ridiculous thing that came out of Congress, all that kind of stuff. And starting about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I started to change my mind on this five years ago. Um, no, 10, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, like, congressmen and senators actually kind of know what's good for their districts. And if they really want, and again, there's going to be back scratching and feather bedding and log rolling and, and all sorts of, you know, minor petty corruptions or even major corruptions. Um, but for the most part, if leadership could bribe congressmen with, you know, two bridges and a community rec center in their district, district in exchange for um, serious entitlement reform, totally worth it. As craven and cynical as that might be, totally worth it. Pennies on the dollar in terms of savings. And, and like, you're going to hear more and more about it. Like, the debt situation is, is rapidly becoming a crisis because of high interest rates. And if we don't get, you don't have to, like, eliminate the national debt. We couldn't if we wanted to. Um, uh, but if you can get the national debt, we are, you know, remember we always used to talk about how Italy had this crazy GDP to debt ratio. We're beating Italy. You know, we're adding Italy level debts you know, every, I don't know, six weeks, six months, something like that. I mean, we are borrowing an insane amount of money in part because interest rates are so high. And, um, and if having a system where you bribe, and I don't find call it a bribe political bribe, right? I don't mean it's like a personal bribe. It's not a Bob Menendez bribe. But if you bribe politicians with, um, you know, some freeway or, or, or high school or stadium um, in exchange for getting serious um, concessions on, on fixing our fiscal house, be fine with me, right? But the thing is, like, bridges to nowhere and all that kind of mohair subsidies, all these kinds of things, um, they were great for the press, they were fun to talk about, and they were an utter distraction from the real underlying problems that we have. Similarly, you know, um, I've written about this a bit lately. I write about it briefly in the mags, in the NRPs. You know, the obsession with transparency has gotten completely out of hand. Um... You cannot get anything done if everything is on camera. 
no aspect there, there there are all sorts of important aspects of your life that you understand this point about right you would not want a camera on you when you're having uh important personal conversations with your spouse you would not if you're an employer you wouldn't want a camera on you while you're talking with your colleagues about who gets a raise and who doesn't um everyone talks about how you know so many people talk about how it's great to have cameras in the courtroom meh i'm not as gung-ho about that as a lot of people. But I think everybody can agree you wouldn't want cameras in the jury deliberation room. You wouldn't want cameras in the judge's chambers when he's talking to the lawyers, right? Some things need to be done behind closed doors. Um, and the obsession with transparency has fueled this political culture where everybody thinks... Um, they have to be performative all the time. Um, look what it's done to Nancy Mace. Look at the caricature of a human being that that Matt Gates has turned into. Um, if you you know what, what do they call it on TikTok? Um, main character syndrome. All these people are behaving as if they are the protagonist in a major film, um, and everybody else is a minor player. And the culture of transparency has done that. The primaries were reform, under understandable reform. Uh, we are now in a situation where something like 4% of the electorate gets to pick the nominees for the two major parties. We're now in a situation where the people voting, who are picking a lot of the nominees in state and Senate, uh, in state uh, and Senate and congressional and House elections, don't actually like their own party. They just hate the other party more. And so they put a preference on not electing people who can get things done, but a preference for nominating people who promise to never work with the other party. And you can go down the list. Now, the reason I bring all this up is one, because I just wrote the piece, but two, and I could go on about other reforms that have screwed us. But we're seeing it on display now with the House. This morning or late last night, I'm not sure which, Scalise dropped out of the running, even though he won technically the vote inside the conference. Um, I have no idea how this is going to play out by the time you hear this. It may be a totally wild different situation. So I don't want to get too gritty or granular on the punditry part of it. But the reason why the house is the mess the, the congressional gop is the mess that it is is because the incentive structure for an enormous number of these people to essentially promise not to get anything done it's to promise to be to to lose fights on principle and then claim that the establishment stabbed you in the back right and you can see this in all of these fights going back with the House GOP for a while now, it's not that everybody is a show horse. It's that there are so many show horses. The, the ratio of show horses to workhorses is all out of whack. And when you have a majority where you can only afford to lose four seats, um, right, because they have a nine-seat majority, so if you lose five, you lost kind of thing, because you're obsessed with this idea that you can only do important things unanimously with one party and with no votes from the other party, you get the mess, you get part of the mess that we're in. And the thing is, that I think a lot of people, and I've made this point before about, like, if, if 
if McCarthy had had a 30-seat majority, which is closer to the norm, or a 50-seat majority, which is closer to the norm in American history, these, these incredibly tight houses, evenly divided houses, are pretty rare. He could afford. There are always whack jobs in every conference. There are always idiots who uh, want to be performative in every conference. But when you only have four votes to spare, everybody has a lot more power than they otherwise would. But that said, I think that's the kind of the wrong message to have, or the wrong moral of the story here, because the correct moral of the story is is that there's a large number of members of the of the Republican caucus who want it this way. Some consciously, right? Uh, that guy wrote Rosendale, Rosendale from Montana. You know, he admitted that he prayed for a small Republican majority because that would give people in his sort of fringy category a lot more power. But also on a sort of cultural subconscious level, the Republican Party wants to be a minority party because the loudest voices benefit from it being, from either being out of power or barely hanging on to power. Because when they're barely hanging on to power, that gives them a lot more leverage and influence. And when they're out of power, they can talk about how they're the purists and they can make the enemy, the perfect, the enemy of good in all things. And they have no accountability and, and actually doing, actually compromising and coming up with workable legislation that can pass. That's a problem because first of all, it holds people accountable, right? You have responsibility for the thing that you, the compromise that you made. And there's a primary electorate that doesn't want to hear about anything about compromise. They literally, there's large segments of people who will vote for the candidate who promises to compromise the least. But also, if you have successful wins, that suggests that maybe all of this nonsense, Flight 93, catastrophization and apocalypticism isn't true, right? If you have all of these steroidal jackwads who are, you know, pumping iron and talking about, do you know what time it is? Like they're on friggin' WWE. Um, and the, the point of this, do you know what time it is thing is you have to be, you know, it's, it's sort of, you have to be turned on. I mean, it is so much like the Timothy Leary BS from the 1960, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out. Like you've got to be woke in effect, right? That's what the original meaning of woke was, like aware of the situation. And there are these radical right-wingers now who I don't think are conservatives at all, who need it to be a sense of panic that we're one election away from oblivion, that Chernovich ghoul and a couple others, they got onto this thing a couple of weeks ago where they just started tweeting about how you do realize if Biden is reelected and you're a conservative influencer, you'll be arrested in the middle of the night and executed, right? They want people to believe this garbage, if you believe that garbage, if you believe the deep state or the establishment or the 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 the, the pentaverate or whatever is the regime is running everything, and you say, "But I cut a deal with them," then you're a collaborator. That's this culture of losing that bedevils the Republican Party right now, and it's more acute because they have a they have a um, a very small majority. But the reason they have a very small majority is because they keep backing. Republicans who believe this garbage, many of whom can't win in general elections. 
right? A lot of the, the Trumpiest candidates in the 2022 midterms, the ones with the biggest Trump backing or tapped into the same kind of electorate, they lost their general elections. And so there were Democrats in those seats. If the Republican Party had just put up normals, they would have won those seats and McCarthy wouldn't have to deal with the caucus of crazies that made it over the threshold. And so it's one of these sort of, you know, uh, self-fulfilling autocatalytic processes that just makes, you know, catch 22 kind of thing that just makes things worse as you go. I feel like maybe I ranted about that last week and I shouldn't have just done it all over again, but screw it. I'm sorry. A point that we sort of got into on the Dispatch podcast yesterday before I um, had to hop off. Uh, I'm not being cryptic. So yesterday what happened was like in the middle of the Dispatch podcast, or towards the end, I don't, I don't know how far into it we were, I get a text from Apple saying I can pick up my iPhone tomorrow at the Dulaney Valley Road Apple Store in Towson, Maryland, which I think is kind of funny because it's right by where I went to college. And... Um, I did not order a phone. My wife did not order a phone. My daughter did not order a phone. Um, it is possible that Pippa did because nobody on the internet, internet knows you're a dog. But I, 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 I talked to her and she didn't do it. And so I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like you have to get back, you have to get past some serious password stuff to be able to like go into my Apple store account and buy a phone. And so I'm starting to deal with that. And as I'm dealing with that, while the podcast is still going, I go to my email and I say, oh, look, there's that Apple Store notification. And it was a legit Apple Store notification. It came in, the text came in on, in the same sort of text thread where my previous legitimate purpose, purchases of Apple products would come in. So like came in over that number, the email looked legitimate from the Apple domain. It wasn't a fake phishing thing. This was like legit. I went into the Apple store and it seemed to have all my info. It was complicated, right? But as I'm looking at this email, all of a sudden my email box just starts to fill up. I mean, I know I have a very full email box, but I mean, like I'm getting a new email every 10 to 30 seconds and it's me signing up for, it's, it's, um, it's welcome to, you know, upholstery plus welcome to, uh, uh, Windows Unlimited. Well, you know, just like one business after another, some of them in China, some of them in Europe, some of them, you know, um, in South America, a lot of them in America saying, you know, click here to confirm, blah, 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 blah. Got hundreds of them in the matter of 10 minutes. And so someone, some Autobot, AI, something or other was screwing with me. This kind of thing has happened a little bit in the past, but it was usually done manually. This was clearly sort of on autopilot. Um, anyway, so that was a fun distraction yesterday amidst all the other stuff I had to do. Anyway, point that we were talking about, which I had to get off before we could flush it out, was I think people are being really kind of deliberately naive about the Hamas attack. I'm not going to talk anymore about murdering Jews and all that kind of stuff. But um, like, first of all, this pushback about the $6 billion in sanction money that we released and now apparently refroze for, um, we can't actually refreeze, but we kind of ask Qatar, hey, you've been a big enough pain in the ass on this stuff. Don't give them this money right now, right? That's, that's, my, that's my read of where it stands. 
But I find the whole argument really kind of absurd. First of all, money is fungible. We've talked about this before. If I agree to pay off your mortgage for three months, um, it is the same thing essentially as me putting money in your pocket because the money you would have dedicated to paying off your mortgage, you now have to pay for other things. So like this idea that, well, they haven't touched the money yet. Um, they didn't use it to fund this Hamas thing. Um, so it's, it's outrageous to talk about this $6 billion in the context of this stuff. I just found that just incredibly stupid and unsatisfying in every way because, or unpersuasive in every way because Funding terrorism is a line item for the Isra for the Iranians every year. It's 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 just part of their budget. They are the primary funder, they're the primary mover of sponsor of state sponsored terrorism in the world and have been for decades. And so like the, the idea that, well, you know, technically this six billion dollars wasn't used to fund this thing, I just I don't get why this is such an incredibly powerful rebuttal to the complaint that maybe we shouldn't be giving the world's biggest state sponsor of terror $6 billion. Nor do I really care that it's their money, right? I mean, this is how sanctions work. You don't freeze your money, you freeze their money. But moreover, like this whole did they greenlight it? You know, the Wall Street Journal story, which was partially confirmed by the Washington Post. The, the, was was it was Iran really behind the Hamas attack? Like, of course. Now, I don't mean, of course, that they greenlit it. I don't mean, the, which they may have. I have no, you know, I would not be shocked at all if, if they, in fact, ordered it. Um, but it's inconceivable to me that, like, Hamas didn't say to Iran, hey, you know, we're going to do this thing. Um, the idea that Iran knew nothing about it when Iran is the primary, along with Qatar, um, the primary funder and supporter of Hamas. Hamas cannot exist without the support of Iran and Qatar. The idea that Hamas totally freelanced this thing, they've been sponsored since, what, 1987 by Iran? Or I guess Saudi Arabia used to um, support them a lot until about a decade ago. But, like, you know, Iran is their sugar daddy. And when you do something that could really blow back on Iran, on your sugar daddy, you get your sugar daddy's approval. And so, and it's sort of like, how dare people suggest Iran had anything to do with this? They've only been keeping these assassins on payroll and training them for 20 years. What makes you think they would have anything to do with this, even though the day it happened, you know, the Iranian parliament celebrated it and, you know, and, and, Every Friday, they're talking about death to Israel. And everyone's like shocked that someone, or how dare you partisans suggest there was anything wrong with giving Iran $6 billion. And then, but the part that I think is not getting nearly enough attention is the Russia component of this. Like this, this last week has been a huge win for Putin. And I don't see how you can see it sort of any other way. I mean, America is casting its gaze on Israel. And I have profound contempt, getting back to my contempt these days, for the Heritage Foundation, Josh Hawley, and these people who are using the tragedy in Israel as an excuse to say, okay, this proves we can't help Ukraine at all anymore. Um, and I, I have contempt, including I've seen it from some friends of mine um, who think it is infantile 
to talk about there being any similarity between the situation in Ukraine and Israel and that our interests are completely different in the two places. I just think that's nonsense. I mean, I think it's really nonsense. Uh, absolutely, Israel and Ukraine are different places. There are different issues involved. There are different equities to consider. There are different risks. To con- All that's fine, right? That's true. But the idea that somehow they are completely different s- situations, I just think is ridiculous. And when I say completely ridiculous situations, what I mean is, I don't think it is that the argument, how to put this, the arguments that the anti-Ukraine people, the anti-anti-Putin people, or the pro-Russian, pro-Russia people are making about how we have to go all in to help Israel, but we have to let Ukraine twist in the wind, I don't think can be reconciled. I think those two positions can be can be can be coherently reconciled um, on the terms that they're putting forward. Because look, first of all, as I said at the beginning, I'm you know I'm a I support democracies guy, and and yeah, Ukraine has got real problems. It's got corruption problems. Um, it's got you know electoral problems, all that kind of stuff. But it is obvious to anybody who's read anything about it, who's followed it closely, Ukraine wants to be a normal Western-oriented democratic country. It has challenges getting there, but it is obvious that that's what they want. They are trying to, and it's what they wanted. And people say, well, they just want that because they need, they need help because they're fighting Russia. No, no, no. They're fighting Russia because they wanted that, Right. Ukraine was slipping away from Putin's sphere of influence and becoming Western-oriented. And that was a profound indictment of Putin's model. And he felt he had to act now before it was too late. And um, so this idea that, like, and so, like, I'm inherently sympathetic to Ukraine on those terms. I'm also sympathetic to Ukraine because it was invaded. It was attacked. There isn't a, you got to look at both sides. There isn't a lot of context here. I have a lot of friends who get very clever in their arguments about like, you know, Russia's historic sphere of influence and the Kievan Rus and all this nonsense. But what's so weird to me is that so many of the people who make those arguments are also the ones who've been telling me for the last 10 years how awesome nationalism is and how nationalism is an idea whose time has come or come again and that we should respect the, the moral vibrancy and, um, and intellectual and philosophical superiority of notions of national sovereignty and nationhood. And at the same time, they say, yeah, but Ukraine's claims of nationhood, that's all bogus. Um, and uh, I don't think you can reconcile those positions, right? Ukraine is a nation. It wants to be an independent sovereign nation. It wants to be an independent democratic sovereign nation. And its neighbor has sent in people who are raping children, and old ladies and everybody in between, they're executing people in mass graves, putting them in mass graves. They're torturing people and they're, they're kidnapping thousands upon thousands of children. And so as a moral matter, I see a lot of similarities between Israel and Ukraine. As a national security matter, I see a lot of similarities between Israel and Ukraine. Ukraine, particularly if they can get out of this thing intact, will be our ally, right? 
They were, we also we made them assurances about respecting their their territorial integrity and their their sovereignty when we negotiated these uh, getting the nukes out of Ukraine. Um, they weren't security guarantees. They were just shy of it. But they, they, they come with some serious moral obligations, if you ask me, and some serious moral hazard if we renege on them. Plus, again, Russia's the bad guy. Russia, you know, all I, I, I didn't know a conservative who disagreed with Mitt Romney in 2012 when he said that Russia was our top geopolitical foe in the world. I still think, you know, for right now, well, I guess China is a bigger geopolitical foe now. I think that's probably fair to say. But um, China at least is being subtle about some of it. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. While Russia is just openly trying to undermine Western democracies. And that gets me the reason why I brought this up is, so we have this, as I put it, I've heard it from other people. I didn't coin it, but you know, it's this axis of a-holes. I've talked about this a few times on here where there's something about how decent countries, decent democratic liberal countries just really don't like hanging out with indecent, tyrannical authoritarian countries. And it doesn't mean that we don't have our problems with French people or Canadians or whatever. And it's not like, you know, I have an abiding love of the Belgians, Belgians, but you know, we don't, we tend not to go to war with each other. We tend to like work things out amicably. We tend to go on vacations in each other's countries. Um, we can watch a lot of each other's Netflix shows and all that kind of stuff. Um, we're, we're a club, right? you know, we, we dig each other and we, you know, we like some countries better than other countries. That's fine. But we don't resort to violence with, with decent countries um, for the most part, right? I mean, I think that's, been true for a long time now. And so the jackass countries, the bad countries, they sort of get stuck at that table in the back of Delta House because no one else wants to hang out with them. And uh, to be more blunt about it, Russia has been cozying up more and more and more with Iran. Iran has been supplying uh, Russia with these, was it, Shahid drones, there's a deep symbiotic alliance between the two now. They're both evil, crappy regimes that are, I mean, to, to the Iranians' credit, the Iranian people hate their regime, I think, more than the Russian people hate theirs. Regardless, they are bad governments that believe in doing terrible, evil things. Russia's got a big problem because the West is supplying the arsenal of democracy to Ukraine. And it strikes me... Again, pure conjecture at this point, but kind of obvious that it is a worthwhile line of inquiry to say that Russia said to Iran, hey, you guys are the shot callers for Hamas. Could you, you know, do something that requires America to take its eye off Ukraine? We'll get our useful idiots in the West to say, go help Israel. Um, now this proves that we have to cut Ukraine loose. It'll distract the West. It'll create, it'll sow even more domestic discord. And it'll be a win-win for us, right? I generally don't like the conspiratorial sort of cui bono kind of logic. Well, who benefits from this? And then you just reason backwards. 
Um, I generally reject that kind of thing. Or it's not that I reject it. I just think it's it's a useful but often insufficient and, and, and occasionally misleading way of thinking about things. But in this context, I mean, who am I being unfair to here? It's not like Putin would have a problem with it. It's not like the Iranian regime would have a problem with it. It's certainly not like Hamas would have a problem with it. And so asking who benefits here is seems worthwhile and revelatory. And so we may not know for a generation um, or we may know tomorrow for all I know. But it, it seems to me that if I had to bet, I would say that it may not have been as cut and dried as Putin calls the Ayatollah and the Ayatollah calls the head of Hamas and says, let's get this done because we need to um, uh, create problems for America and distract America. But at the same time, as this discussion was happening, where everybody was trying to get approval, because if Hamas had to get approval from Iran, my hunch is that Iran would want some buy-in from, from Russia. I just wouldn't be shocked if this calculation was one of the reasons why they, they went ahead with it. The reason why this is a important thing to think about is that it shows you there actually is a connection between Israel and Ukraine, that our enemies who are fighting with our allies think it is useful to fight with other allies. And I don't want to get into some World War I kind of, you know, entangling alliances kind of scenario any more than anybody else does, but it's worth keeping that front of mind. And this is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I have such disdain for the um, the opponents of helping Ukraine is one of their biggest arguments is um, this is Europe's problem, right? And they, they, they talk about how Europe isn't, including DeSantis, I like irresponsibly, they'll talk about how Europe isn't paying its fair share. They're not carrying their share of the burden. As a percentage of GDP, that's not true. I think in terms of total dollars now, it's not true either, or at least it's very close. Um, but even if it were true, okay. And therefore what, right? Like when we were attacked on 9-11, when we invaded Afghanistan, when we invaded Iraq, we asked our allies to help us out. They joined a coalition of the willing, of the willing because they saw it as in their interest to get our back when we needed them because on the assumption that we would get their back when they needed us. And if we're going to say to our NATO allies, yeah, I understand that this is the first mass-scale land war in Europe since World War II. I mean, yeah, there was Yugoslavia, but this is different. Um, yeah, I understand that Russia has designs, public, open designs, on members of NATO, right? I mean, like, you have people on their nightly TV shows talking about taking back the Baltics or invading Poland or whatever. Like, these are NATO countries. And you can say it was a mistake to make them NATO countries. I don't think it was, but like, okay, that, there's a reasonable realpolitik argument there, but they're NATO countries. They shed blood and spent treasure working for us. The idea that somehow, I mean, it'd be one thing if this was a totally illegitimate and terrible conflict to get involved in to support. Like if, if Ukraine was the bad actor or something like that, maybe that'd be different. But Ukraine is clearly the victim here. Russia is clearly the bad actor. This idea that somehow we shouldn't be helping our allies in an effort that they think is of vital importance. 
I just find completely unpersuasive and would spell conceivably the end of NATO if we actually acted on it. And so I just like, I just think it's a bad argument. And one of the reasons why it's important for us to get Israel's back is because we said we would. We've said that they, we are their best friend and we are said that, that we are their ally. Their enemies, their biggest enemies are also our biggest enemies. And the idea that we would leave Israel high and dry seems immoral, but also bad foreign policy. And um, similarly, giving Russia a win by being able to gobble up half or all of Ukraine, as immoral and evil as that would be on those grounds, it would also just be bad for America. We would now expand Russia's border with NATO in all sorts of ways. We would send the signal that we are... We are not willing to sort of provide the leadership in the world. The crap that we're seeing now all over the world is a symptom of America retreating from the world or being perceived as too weak or too unserious to follow through on its principles and commitments. That's what we're seeing right now. Weakness invites this kind of stuff. I don't like the, I don't, I've never liked the metaphor of the world's policeman, but leader of the free world has meaning and Pax Americana, whether you like it or not, was good for the world and it was good for America. And these people who want to retreat to this Fortress America idea, I'm not necessarily going to call them all isolationists because isolationism is a really misunderstood phenomenon in American history and I should talk about it more later. Um, but they're non-interventionists. They're, if you want to call them neo-isolationists, whatever. America firsters. I mean, they love the term America first. Most of them think it comes from Donald Trump and don't realize it actually came from um, a bunch of, you know, again, calling them isolationists is complicated. It came from a bunch of people that we call, we typically call isolationists who basically didn't want to get in Germany's way in World War II and wanted, you know, Germany essentially to win. They embrace that term. They own that term. The smart people who say it, the informed people who say it, are untroubled by his historical connotations because they think, you know, Trump washes away all sin. But giving these people their way would make the world more dangerous um, and would involve throwing a lot of our friends under buses and allowing for a lot more slaughter of innocent people, whether in Ukraine or in Israel. All right. I know I've gone really long. I'm done. I apologize. I could... I got so much more, I got like a sack of monkeys in my head, um, but I got to get going. I got to write something. Good podcast coming next week. I recorded the state of the dispatch podcast with um, Steve Hayes yesterday. Um, I'm always sort of apologetic for it because to me, it's like, let's say out loud, let's say on public view conversations that me and Steve have had a million times. And so it always feels a little mix of like, marketing and dishonesty to it, but we try to do it in a really honest way. But lots of the feedback we always get is really good from people about how they're interested in it and all that. But if you're not interested in it, I will not take offense. If you don't want to listen to me and Steve talk about how we think about the dispatch, how we think about journalism, how we think about the future of what we're trying to do, that's fine. But for people who are interested in that stuff, I think it was a pretty good one of these things. We just passed the four-year anniversary of the dispatch. Super grateful to everybody out there. Uh, who've who've helped us along the way. Even greater things are to come. And with that, I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>